Welcome to Museum Archipelago. I'm Ian Elsner. Museum Archipelago is your audio guide through the landscape of museums. Each episode is never longer than 15 minutes. So let's get started. My name is James Del Borgo. I am a professor of history of science and the Atlantic world at Rutgers. And I'm the author of a recent book, Collecting the World, uh, Hans Sloan and the Origins of the British Museum. It's a book that tells the story of Hans Sloan and how the British Museum came into existence in the 1750s. Hans Sloan was born in the north of Ireland in 1660, and he moved to London at the age of 19. He trained as a botanist and as a physician. But in 1687, he becomes physician to the new governor of Jamaica, the Duke of Albemarle, and he sets sail with Albemarle, really for two reasons. Of course, this is in part uh, fortune-seeking, and Sloan hopes to become wealthy by sailing to Jamaica, which is just at this time becoming intensively converted to slave labor and sugar cultivation. So Sloan goes to Jamaica really when... Uh, Jamaica is beginning its rise through sugar and slavery, what will become one of the most lucrative colonies of, of the British Empire in the 18th century. So he has material incentives, but also botanical incentives and, and medical incentives, hoping to find new drugs that Europeans don't yet uh, know about, and and also hoping to collect, record, note down information about as many new exotic plant and potentially animal species uh, as he can. So it's it's a very particular moment where uh, scientific ambition and personal ambition coincide with the opening up of uh, these new lucrative island colonies in the Caribbean by the British through sugar and slavery at the at the end of the 17th century. In Jamaica, Sloan began writing his two-volume book, Natural History, and became deeply embedded within the enslaving plantocracy. You have Sloan, who is f- the friend of planters, and will ultimately marry into the plantocracy by marrying a Jamaica widow by the name of Elizabeth Langley Rose, from whom he receives money from sugar plantations that, that ultimately feed his collecting. So Sloan is part of all of that. And indeed, in his natural history, he justifies and, and defends the use of, of violence uh, to maintain the profitability of slavery. Sloan's natural history was mostly a collection of what plants grow in Jamaica and what could be profitably extracted from the land. He took as much of it as he could to add to his growing collection. But it wasn't just plants. Also in that book, recorded on staves, extremely rare for this period, is musical notation that is a version of musical performance executed by enslaved West Africans in Jamaica in the late 17th century that Sloan claims to have have witnessed. There are very few other travelers who go to these empirical lengths to record the music played by enslaved uh, Africans and indeed to collect their instruments, uh, which he does. And he brings their banjo-like strum-strums, that's the term he he uses for them in his natural history. So there's an extraordinary contradiction or tension between uh, acts of exploitation and acts of preservation. This is in no way to condone or justify or sympathize with those kinds of justifications for what was, of course, 
a brutal legalized system of, of, of violence in the pursuit of in the pursuit of profit. You know, his his curiosity is a very complex generative uh, curiosity because it is this universalistic form of natural history that has a reach into many different domains that will later become specialized and distinct in the 19th and, and the 20th century. After he comes back to England, he never leaves again, and yet he continues collecting. Here he is, he has book wheels, yes. books upon books, which he's writing down, keeping track of all of this. He's doing so with without a computer. He's doing so in a way that... I think many of us who use computers all day are familiar with, but he's doing so in in <laughs> in the context of the late 17th century. Uh, did, did you ever have that thought when you were looking through his collection about how kind of modern his his problem was? His problem being, there's a lot of stuff that I need to catalog. Well, it, it did occur to me after a while. You're, you're quite right, I think, to point to something that looks very familiar to us, which is the classification and the categorization of many different kinds of information. And we attempt to manage this challenge uh, electronically. And Sloan attempted to manage this, this project on paper, through correspondence, th through applying paper labels with inked numbers to specimens and curiosities, putting them in certain parts of his house, which doubled as his private museum, each number on each thing, linking them to an entry in a catalog. What these European naturalists saw themselves as doing was, was somehow cataloging the divine creation. So there was a religious idea that there was a unity to the world that was a divine unity, that was a reflection of the, of the omnipotence and wisdom and divine design. Of course, I didn't mean that somebody like Sloan was, was not also pursuing profit and, and interested in, in drugs and foodstuffs that could be turned into commodities. It's absolutely the case at the same time. So both of these things are, are true. And in, and in that sense, you know, the, the commercial management of global information, the global management of, of commodities reduced to uh, short descriptions, this is not a bad way at all to characterize what Sloan was doing on paper, uh, something that goes on in our own time uh, in, in electronic form. So Sloan is part of, of a, a long history of that. But at the same time, he's, he's also sorting what he sees as the creation into discrete catalogs of kinds of things as God designed them. Fossils, birds, eggs, plants, uh, fish, artificial curiosities, and so on and so forth. I would like to turn my attention and my question to that legacy of founding the British Museum. How much of our understanding of a big museum like the British Museum actually owes to this one sentence that Sloan wrote that he wanted his collection to be free and universally accessible, and how much of a problem that was. Well, you touch on an absolutely fundamental theme, which we could say is the theme of, of the public museum. Sloan, like many collectors, was very preoccupied with what would become of his life's work. He had, already during the course of his lifetime, absorbed collections by a number of other collectors, so really during his life, he evolves 
into a kind of human living repository of, of other people's natural history collections. Don't forget, he's extremely wealthy for many reasons. Income from the Jamaica sugar plantations, uh, salaries, and various other things. And he's very long-lived, lives to be 92. And so what that means is he is able to uh, collect the collections of, of people who are, you know, friends and acquaintances. And it almost becomes proverbial that, you know, in London, center of an expanding uh, empire at this time in the early 18th century, you know, if somebody pops off and they had a great collection, they, that collection should go to Sir Hans Sloan because he's already evolved into this sort of holding operation, a kind of guardian on behalf of the public. That idea of public access to collections doesn't really exist in the first half of the 18th century in a very robust way. He's one of the people that's going to invent that. So there is something extraordinarily significant about the language in his will, which you have, have quoted, which then becomes the basis of the British Museum Act, which creates the British Museum as an institution where his collections, along with certain others that get added to them, will be uh, publicly accessible in a very uh, interesting way. And even more interesting is the um, uh, reaction of many, not all, but many curators, early curators of the British Museum in the 18th century. And they say to themselves, oh my God, now here comes the public. We've got to let the great unwashed in to see all these things. How are we going to do this? How are we going to manage this? And, and a number of them, and I quote the evidence in, in the book, are extremely vexed by the idea of what to them is a radical departure where we will allow the different classes and, and genders to mix in the museum. And, and so that was not an easy idea. That ran into, you know, Sloan set this up and then he died. He didn't have to deal with it. The curators did, and they balked at it. And, and that then becomes a much longer story of really what is a public institution? Who really does have what kind of access under what kind of conditions? It is always mediated, inevitably. So I think that's always a question worth asking, and it's a long story even to the current day. As, as we know, for example, uh, the Metropolitan Museum, uh, in some senses a descendant of the universal encyclopedic tradition in, in New York, founded in the 1870s, has decided to introduce admission charges for, for people living outside New York State. So the conditions of public access are never finally resolved, and they can become more liberal or less liberal as time goes by. And I think that's a question that we all have to watch. Uh, so I think Sloan is setting that up through his uh, legacy in an extraordinary way. And we are all to some extent, I would say, the heirs of, of such a tradition. But there's no guarantee that it will um, uh, continue to, to liberalize. In fact, it may become subject to, to greater constraint. And you could say that, you know, given the economic situation we're living in today, we are, we are looking at potentially more constraint on our access to these public institutions. Del Burgo's book is called Collecting the World, Hans Sloan and the Origins of the British Museum. It's a great read, and you can find it in the show notes for this episode. No surprise that I'm a huge fan of podcasts, and I'm always interested in new ones. 
If you like Museum Archipelago, you should also download Museums in Strange Places, a podcast about Icelandic museums by Hannah Hethman. Hannah was featured on episode 33 of this show, talking about her work cataloging Icelandic museums. For new listeners, Hannah recommends starting with episode 11, about how seals are saving hamstringy. Go find Museums in Strange Places wherever you subscribe to podcasts. This has been Museum Archipelago. If you like the show, you can support me by joining Club Archipelago. In exchange for your support, you'll get access to a new premium audio feed that guides you further behind the scenes of museums. You can join the club by going to patreon.com slash museumarchipelago or looking in the show notes for this episode. For more information or to submit feedback, go to museumarchipelago.com or museum underscore go on Twitter. Next time, bring a friend.